I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that you are at the start of a big race, you know, like a, like a marathon, right? Huge race. And you're standing on the sidelines ready to cheer on all the runners. And they're in position. They're waiting for that starting gun. And then, bang, everybody takes off. But one runner falls down hard, hits the ground, boom. Now, maybe they got knocked down. Maybe they just tripped over their own shoelaces. Uh, maybe it was their fault, somebody else's fault. We don't know. All we know is now they're lying on the ground, and the race is just going on and going on, leaving them behind. But as you're watching from the sidelines, you see this runner make a decision to get back on their feet and get back in the race. You see them. They struggle to rise. They struggle to stand up. They struggle to shake off the fall, and they start taking a few halting steps forward. How would you feel about that person? How would you react? Would you be inspired? Would you cheer them on? Would you believe that that runner is, is an amazing human being and deserves a second chance to try to get back in the race? Now, imagine for a moment the person struggling to get back on their feet is not a runner, but someone who's been convicted of a felony. And you're not watching a race, you're watching their life. Now, how would you react? Would you, would you feel inspired? Would you, would you cheer them on? Would you believe that that person deserves a second chance? This is Incarceration Incorporated, and I'm your host, Van Jones. One of the things that struck me is, you know, the idea of extended punishment. So... Um, I'm currently going on nine years, uh, you know, free of, in, in, of physical incarceration and seven years uh, free of parole. But mm -hmm. the consequences still linger. There's still things that I encounter in my day to day life. And so you feel forever haunted by the reality of this thing that hangs over you when you've already served your sentence. That is Shaka Senghor. He's a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, recently, he was a Media Labs fellow at MIT. Today, he runs the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. Oprah Winfrey has interviewed the guy, calls him an inspiration and a friend. And he achieved all of this after serving time, 19 years in prison, for a crime that he did, in fact, commit. And yet, despite all of his achievements, Shaka is forever haunted by that prison sentence handed down half a lifetime ago. How does it feel when you've already served your time, to still be facing punishment? And how does our society make it difficult, if not nearly impossible, to put your life back together and get back in the race? In this episode, we're talking about probation, parole, and reentry with folks who have firsthand knowledge of what that's like. But before we dive in, we need to get some language sorted out. Millions of Americans are presently on probation and parole, but most folks don't really know what the terms even mean. So let me try and take a crack at it. When a judge gives someone a sentence for breaking the law, the judge can either put that person in jail or prison, or the judge can let that person stay in the community under some kind of supervision. In other words, they are under community supervision or community corrections. Those are the terms. That's the supervision of people who broke the law, 
but they still live in the regular community or in the residential population as opposed to in a correctional facility like a jail or a prison. They're not behind bars, but they are not free to do whatever they want to either. The most common types of community supervision are probation and parole. Now, what's the difference? Probation is a court-ordered period of community supervision, generally as an alternative to incarceration. Basically, you are on probation instead of being in jail or prison. Parole, on the other hand, is a period of community supervision after serving time in a state or federal prison, meaning you are on parole after you go to jail or prison. So-called probationers and parolees can have a number of different kinds of supervision status. For example, when they're on active supervision, they're required to report regularly to law enforcement. And in many cases, they're required to fulfill certain conditions while they're on community supervision. They might have to pay fines or fees or court costs or participate in addiction treatment programs. Uh, In addition, they have to adhere to certain rules of conduct. And if they fail to comply with all these rules, Even if they never commit another crime, they can still be sent back to prison. To get a better understanding of community supervision, you know, probation, parole, I invited Dr. Brian Lovins of Justice System Partners to join us in the conversation. Now, Dr. Lovins got a Ph.D. in criminology from the University of Cincinnati School of Criminal Justice. And he is a former assistant director of the Harris County Community Supervision and Corrections Department in Texas. What was the intended purpose of probation and parole? Uh, Doctor, can you just walk us through what it's supposed to be, how it was supposed to be set up? Absolutely. So initially, uh, John Augustus set it up to help people, predominantly folks who had alcohol problems, uh, not go to prison. John Augustus, born in Woburn, Massachusetts in the 1780s. Now, by trade, he was a shoemaker, but he would one day be known as the father of probation. Uh, John Augustus set up folks with jobs and resources and connections. In 1841, John Augustus visited the police court in Boston, and he advocated for a man that was accused of public intoxication. Augustus convinced the judge to release the man to his supervision instead of sending the guy to jail, making Augustus the first volunteer probation officer. Less than a month later, the man returned to court sober, and he pledged he would never offend again. And I really believe that from the very beginning, it was designed really to not be a trap as much as it was to be for people who self-corrected and just got back on track right away, and that that prison was really the end game to all of this. Over the years, Augustus would help almost 2,000 other folks avoid jail and turn their lives around. And so uh, probation was a way to keep those folks who could do it on their own. And what I argue is we need to set a system up that's designed for the, the, the group of people who need our help. And there's a ton of people who don't need our help that we need to stay out of their lives and just let them self-correct, right? But there's a group of people who really need support. And, and I think the system could do that, but we'd have to redesign the way it works. Fast forward to today, and there are an estimated 4.5 million adults under community supervision in the United States. 
That number is from 2016 and the most recent data available from the Department of Justice's Bureau of Justice Statistics. 80% of that 4.5 million were on probation. The rest were on parole. The number of folks on probation and parole has actually been declining in recent years, reaching its lowest level since 1999. But 4.5 million people under community supervision is still one out of every 55 adults in the United States. And for those of you who are doing the math at home, this 4.5 million people on probation and parole is actually in addition to the 2 million plus folks who are locked up in jails and prisons that we talked about in episode one. In fact, as massive as our prison and jail population is, and it's the biggest in the history of the world, twice as many people in America are on probation and parole. We often talk about mass incarceration, but we actually need a new term, mass supervision. Topeka K. Sam is the founder and executive director of Ladies of Hope Ministries. Now, she's personally experienced what it's like to be under community supervision. So I asked her to share her story to help put the human cost of this kind of mass supervision into a wider context. So for me, once I was released from prison, I had post-incarceration sentence of five years uh, through federal supervision. And what happened was from one probation officer or federal supervisor to the next, things changed. And it was someone was very, very supportive of the work that I was doing. And then all of a sudden I had a new officer who was not. And they just became very, I would say, arbitrary, very um, extra punitive, stopped my travel, impeded the work that I was doing, stated that my movements were reminiscent of a drug dealer because I was traveling so much. But you were traveling helping people. Exactly. I was going to say, by the way, to organize and bring awareness and empower other formerly incarcerated women to use their voice and also policy change. And hold on a second. Let me just stop. So you you get out of prison, you spend your time, energy, trying to help other women land on their feet, and that becomes a problem for a parole officer. Is there anything illegal about helping people who are coming home from prison? Well, there's this idea, culture, around, you know, when people come home, what they're up to. You know, I say, quote, unquote. And the fact that one of the chief probation officers stated that when you're in prison, you learn new crimes. And so after her experience of being a probation officer for 20 years, she felt that I was coming home and basically educating people on how to commit new crimes. And so she had to investigate that. But what they do is there's this outdated, arbitrary stipulation on conditions of release that state that people with convictions cannot communicate with one another. So it's, again, continuing to further separate us from our families, from our community, from our support. And there are cities like, thank God, New York right now uh, has written to change that stipulation. And we're also looking through probation and parole accountability project to change it federally and across the country. But this is what they use to begin to separate us and to say that, hey, I cannot work with someone else who has a criminal conviction because they, too, have been or are under supervision. And that is against the law. I mean, this is part of what makes no sense. It's just how arbitrary it is. Yep. It's not saying, well, 
if you are involved with somebody and you guys are committing new crimes, mm -hmm. then you're in trouble. It's just literally saying we're going to put a, a scarlet letter F on you as somebody who's been in the system. And then no matter how many more people in your family, in your community, you can't talk to them who have the same situation. And even when you're trying to help each other get out of a bad situation, we're going to punish you for helping each other. Yep. In an essay published by the Open Society Foundations in 2017, Topeka wrote, quote, In theory, probation and parole are important elements in the drive for decarceration. However, the system has also created an additional layer of law enforcement control, intrusion and surveillance, especially in communities of color, which are heavily policed already. And this feeling of intrusion was raised by several of our guests. Uh, here's how Shaka weighed in. You know, one time I was at home with a newborn son and parole agents come to the house to do their cursory check. And it was super invasive, super disrespectful, disrespectful to my neighbors. They're beating on the door. They pull up with multiple squad cars. And when they come in, it's almost like they're doing a police raid. And here it is, I have a, a, a newborn who's trying to sleep and I'm trying to navigate that space as a father and as a member of society. At that point, I did 19 years in prison. And so to come out and to be basically in prison in my own home for two more years uh, was devastating. You know, unfortunately, I had the skill set to navigate that, mm. but many people don't. How is this making it almost impossible for uh, folks to come home and do well? Uh, all of this supervision, all this intrusion. I mean, I think it makes it really impossible when you start to think about to what Topeka spoke to is, is the proximity of somebody else who has a felony. Oftentimes, people who get caught up in the system, it's like right in your community. So my friends have felonies, my brothers, my siblings. We got Dr. Brian Lovins on the phone. How, how does this play out uh, from your point of view? I think they're exactly right. Uh, we are an upside down or a backwards system. Probation, parole, even prison has never been designed really for uh, rehabilitation or even corrections. It's been designed for self completers or self-correctors who are put in the system, given a set of conditions or a set of rules that they have to live by from day one. And so if you look at the way even probation and parole is designed, the day I get put on probation, I get a set of rules that say, don't use drugs, have a job, have a place to live, don't hang out with criminal others, don't go to places of irreputable behavior. All of those things are backwards. What we really need is a system that takes folks where they are and helps work with them over time to get better. I think John Augustus would agree. After the break, we're going to talk about the ways that formerly incarcerated folks are often shut out of society and the barriers that they're facing just trying to get back on their feet. That's up next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. 
All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I want to take you back for a second to that race we mentioned at the top of the show. Now imagine again that you're on the sidelines watching as a runner who stumbled attempts to get back in the race. Now imagine a stranger standing next to you goes over to the runner. But this stranger does not try to help the runner up or hand them some water. Instead, they start pouring marbles on the ground in front of the runner throwing banana peels into their path, tripping the runner up while they're struggling to stand. How would you feel about this stranger sabotaging the runner, using marbles, banana peels, whatever they can to keep them back and hold them back? How would you react? Would you, would you feel outraged? Would you start booing them? You know, when I was on parole in Michigan, I remember uh, a time I almost went back to prison. And it was because they have these immediate drug tests that they do. And because the test was just taking forever to come back and I knew I hadn't consumed any marijuana or anything of that nature, my parole officer, who, you know, for the most part was trying to be supportive, completely flipped and was like, if this doesn't come back, you're going back to prison. And here it is at this point, I'm writing for the newspaper. You know, I've written a book and I'm doing all of these, you know, incredible things in the community. And, like, my freedom is threatened based on the technicality of a faulty test. Mm-hmm. And it's so common and so often that you'll find people, they'll go back, and then they'll get a hearing, and then they're released. But in that time, they've lost their job, mm-hmm. you know. And so what we're seeing is these technical violations that, you know, you can jaywalk, and and if you just come in contact with a police officer, that's enough to go back to prison. Well, that's something I think a lot of people don't understand. Yeah. I think when you hear, oh, well, this person was on parole and they blew parole or they violated probation, you're thinking, oh, well, this person went out there, they were jacking cars, they were selling drugs, they were, you know, doing you know big, big things. I think a lot of people would be shocked to hear that you can literally go back to prison because a police officer talked to you. Absolutely. You Not, not that you were doing anything wrong. But any contact with law enforcement, hello, officer friendly, and you are back in prison. Yes. If you have a parole agent that has no understanding, you're going back and you have to report that contact. Even if it's just something you got pulled over for a broke taillight, you have to report it and then they can decide whether they want to take you back. These are just these technical violations. And that's to your point. People don't think about that. These are things people are going back to prison for stuff you wouldn't even go to trial for, Mm -hmm. like misdemeanors, Mm -hmm. you know, superficial contact, minor things. Mm -hmm. And that's what's overburdening the system. And it's one of the things that we have to end. It seems to me that, you know, just common sense would tell you that you can either set up a trap door into failure or you can set up a springboard to success. And that the people who are working in probation and parole, um, you know, it, to me, it seems like it would be better for them to try to catch people doing the right stuff and help them do the right stuff 
They see somebody who's going to community college. They see somebody who's trying to get a certificate. They see somebody who's trying to to pay their um, restitution back to the society or you know their child support or whatever it is. And they would get excited and they would help that person right. and they would have a whole bunch of resources to help that person and maybe even you know as they are making progress you know cut their time on probation and parole that that would be what most people would expect. You're coming home from prison. You're coming home from jail. Here's a government official that's going to meet you and greet you. You have probation officers that really want to help, most of whom I've met who've had social work backgrounds because they understand the need of assisting people in this transition period because the first person you meet when you come home is either your case manager at a halfway house who then has to transition you into supervision and that probation officer is the person that you're looking to for help, whether it is to go back and pursue your education, whether it is to get housing, whether it is to get your kids back, whether it is just to understand about the employment space. And when you have 44,000, which is what I've recently learned over the last several months, 44,000 barriers to reentry, think about then what the person who's never been through that how can they truly support and assist you? And then you want to separate us from our community of support, which is other people who have been through the system and understand what we need. Now, when Topeka mentions 44,000 barriers to reentry, it may sound like hyperbole, but the actual number is bigger, 45,000. Now, she's referring to research done by organizations like the American Bar Association that more than back up her numbers. In 2015, the criminal justice section of the ABA released a report in partnership with the DOJ's National Institute of Justice. That report cited 45,000 barriers, or what they call collateral consequences of conviction. The numbers vary year to year as laws get you know, repealed and new legislation gets passed. But to say that there are literally tens of thousands of barriers to reentry for formerly incarcerated folks is no exaggeration. So what are we talking about here? I mean, the denial of government assistance like food stamps and public housing, you know, the inability to secure a business license. Uh, being ineligible for financial aid to go to school, stuff like that. These are just a few of the barriers that folks who are wrapped up in the criminal justice system might face. Another major barrier comes up during the job application process. Checking a box that says you've got a criminal record or failing a background check can make it very challenging to get a job even after you've served your time and turned your life around. A 2018 publication by the Brookings Institution cited data which shows in the first year after release, quote, only 55 percent of former prisoners have any reported earnings. And those who do find work tend to earn less than what you would make working a full time job at the federal minimum wage. And so it's incredibly frustrating, which is why so many of us who have been impacted are stepping forward in the leadership and taking what we learn to assist others. But what's so sad about it is we know just about the amount of people that end up going back to prison based on recidivism, based on lack of community support are through technical violations, which don't have to happen. Technical violations. I always say non-crime technical violations. These are not... Right. Crimes. It, it, talking to a police officer exactly. is not a crime. You know, being 10 minutes late for a meeting is not a crime. If so, Getting married. I'm the, 
Look, if you're being late to meetings is a crime, I'm the biggest criminal. (laughs) So, you know, um, so getting uh, married, purchasing a car, moving out of a jurisdiction based on what they say, getting a job in another county, um, working past places that don't want to date. So it seems like to me, again, we're just set. We're we're setting people up to fail rather than setting them up to, to succeed. And Brian, you have this concept that's a really transformative, revolutionary concept saying that probation officers should act more like coaches instead Mm -hmm. of just referees. Absolutely. So we're a system designed to manage people like referees, right? There are great referees, right? No one knows their name or should know their name because they should be hidden to the side. Think about what a referee does. A referee is a person who manages a game. They have a set of rules not set by them, but set by someone else. Usually probation and parole work off of rules set by judges or by parole boards. And then they watch the rules. And what the system believes is that if you just blow the whistle enough, right, no one wants to foul out of the game. And so if I give you the rules, here are the rules, here's what you're supposed to follow, and I'm going to monitor you, and I'm going to blow the whistle when you commit a foul, and you're going to come back into, right, into the bounds of the game. And my job is procedural justice. My job is to regulate you following the rules, you individual justice-involved person. And so... So the problem with that is, is that our referees aren't invested in the outcome. We don't want referees invested in the outcome. We want referees invested in the process. And that's the issue with our system is we have created 90,000 referees, given them a whistle, given them a set of rules, and we don't even manage the revocation process. Our job is just to blow the whistle and report the report the foul. And we have to change that, right? We've got to change it so that we're coaches and that we are invested in the outcomes. And so you start to think about what a coach does, right? A coach identifies the skills of a person. They look for where they're good and where they're struggling. They teach them ways to manage the things they're struggling with and prop them up and give them, you know, benefits and rewards and recognition for those areas where they're strong. They put them in positions where they can be successful and don't put them in positions where they're going to fail. And then over time, we train them and coach them and support them so that they can be successful when we need to. And so in this coach model, what we would envision is people come on supervision with where they are and that the goal of supervision is by the time it's over, we've worked together to create an environment where this person only can be successful. And and that's a complete shift, right? It's a complete shift of how we see our work and how it's designed. So the way the system is, and I hear it in both of both of our, our friends' voices, is that right, it pushes devastation or, or uh, despair versus hope. And we believe that the system really needs to be flipped upside down and that we need to be a system of hope and opportunity to change. And and I fully agree that there are folks across this country who don't see themselves as, uh, as invested in the justice-involved individuals that we work with, but they're invested in the rules and applying a bunch of consequences and, and watching for people just to break rules so that they can enact a revocation. Folks who aren't invested in the justice-involved individuals. Now, that is ironic phrasing from Dr. Lovins because, in fact, there are some people invested in the system, just not in the way you might think. So when people are incarcerated, 
they there's this this idea that they get everything that they need. Right. So you lock them up, you throw away the key and they get meals. I think that the term is three hots in a cot. And so you're good. But yet you pay for everything. That is on the next episode of Incarceration Incorporated. For more on the criminal justice system, check out my docu-series called The Redemption Project. It airs on Sunday nights from 9 p.m. East Coast and West Coast on CNN. You can also find it on CNN.com go. I take you into the room as people who have caused harm and gone to prison for that get face-to-face with the people whom they hurt, and they have a conversation for the first time, face-to-face. You get a chance to witness restorative justice. It's a powerful process. We're going to talk about it later on in this podcast. You can also visit CNN.com slash redemption to learn more. If you like this episode, head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. And leave us ratings and a comment while you're there. This episode was produced by Amy Eason, Elizabeth Roberts, and Emma Sislowski. Special thanks to Andy Lichtenfeld and Gus Alexander at the Reform Alliance. I'm your host, Van Jones. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.